Hello and welcome to the John Mark Comer Teaching Podcast. I'm your host, Strawn Coleman, and I am part of the teaching team here at Practicing the Way. Each week on the podcast, we share a teaching from John Mark or other trusted voices in the formation space. In today's teaching, John Mark explores what it means to, in the words of Paul the Apostle, grow and mature into the fullness of Christ by asking the question, how do you and I really change? As you listen, you might like to ask yourself, what unintentional practices are forming me most in my life today? Here's John Mark. Be true to yourself. Good advice, bad advice, yes. We hear this all the time, right? In a magazine interview with a Hollywood celeb in the West Hills of LA, what advice do you have for the reader? You know, be true to yourself. Great, that's really helpful. What if I don't look like you? It's not quite as helpful. In the audiobook from the self-help guru on your morning commute, you know, 10 tips for whatever. Number three, be true to yourself. In the Oprah-esque talk show interview, thinking of a marriage or of a divorce or of a sex change or of a whatever, well, you know, the thing is, be true to yourself, pan to the audience, head nod everywhere, right? This is more than a cliche in our culture. It is a mantra really for American culture in particular. But as a follower of Jesus, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I love it. I mean, it's right in line with this idea of discovering your identity and calling, like go on that journey of self-discovery, figure out who you are, who you aren't, what you are made to do, what you are not made to do, and then be yourself. On the other hand, I hate it. It's really not all that helpful at all. I mean, for starters, like there is the follow-up question, which self? Because I, for one, am a bit of a mixed bag. Am I alone in that? You know, every day I face decision after decision, and it's like I'm not even sure what I want half the time. I want to eat a plant-based diet and exercise six days a week and look and feel like I belong in Men's Health magazine. (laughs) But I also want that pastry with my coffee and the one next to it. And then I want to go out to a food cart for lunch, and then I want to eat at Tusk every single night for dinner with a beer. Like, I... So both are, which me is the real me, right? I want to get up at 6 a.m. every single morning and read my Bible and pray and anchor my mind and even my body in the reality of God before I do anything. I also want to sleep in and just make a cup of coffee and read the New York Times and then show up for work 10 minutes late. Hmm. So which me is the real me? You see what I'm getting at? A number of psychologists argue that even if you, you know, meet all the criteria for mental health, that most of us have more than one self. For example, Dr. David Brenner, a psychologist and professor, writes, what we call I is really a family of many part selves. Or Richard Foster, I was reading this yesterday afternoon, he writes, within all of us is a whole conglomerate of selves. What they mean by that is under the surface of the image that we project to the world, um, we're all, at least most of us, are a little bit confused. Because we have desire, but we have more than one set of desires. And some of our desires are, are bent in the direction of what we know in the bottom of our heart is good and beautiful and true. But then we have other desires that are just as real and just as, quote, authentic, that are bent 
in all the wrong and upside down and cracked directions. And so we live in this tension, this tug of war, this in the language of literary criticism, this inner conflict. And this tension is nothing new. It's as old as the human condition. On that note, Ephesians chapter 4 hopefully is open to you, in front of you in your Bible. This is a letter that is upwards of two millennia old. It's so good that here we are still reading it. And we used it a few weeks ago, if you were here, for a theology of identity. But it's also about calling. We left off in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's reread that. As a prisoner for the Lord then, or therefore, in light of all of that identity, I urge you, what? To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. There's this idea of calling. He goes on. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice that he says far more about character than he does about career. And we made the point a few weeks ago that when you think about calling, there are at least two dimensions to your calling. Most of us hear that idea of calling, and we immediately think of work, our nine-to-five, or this kind of you know, late Western idea of vocation, which is a great idea, the role that you play in the healing and the renewal of the world. And that, that's beautiful, and that is one dimension of it. That's the, if you want to call it, the outward journey into the world. But there's at least another dimension of calling that is the inner journey into your own soul, where you grow and you mature and you become more like Jesus, and in doing so, more like your true self. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Let's keep reading. Skip down to 11. He goes on. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, all sorts of types of leaders in the church. And here's the job of a leader in the church. Here's my job. Quote, 12, to equip his people, that's you, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that's poetry. I write a letter once in a while, or it's called an email now, and it does not sound like that at all. Right? I love his just vision for your life to grow and mature into the fullness of Christ, end quote, into all that God has for you. And what does he mean by that? He means in your character, not just in your career. That's what calling is all about. Now, he goes on, and just stay with me. Keep reading, 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. This is like non-optional, that you must, like notice how emphatic his language is, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That's not a racial invective. That just means people outside of the church. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life, there's our language, that you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self 
created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul goes on. Notice that for Paul, you have an old self and a what? A new self. And the call, if you want to talk about calling, is to put off the old self and put on the what? New self. Now, this is the imagery of clothing. Think of, you know, a wardrobe. Think of Mr. Rogers, those of you that were around back in the 80s. Uh, think of the wardrobe change or whatever. The invitation is to put, don't worry, I won't take off all my clothes, I promise, <laughs> is to put off an old item of clothing and to put on a new item of clothing. And it's just a word picture. And I know this is super cheesy, but you're going to remember this on Wednesday, <laughs> all right? And that's the invitation. You put off and you put on. You put off an old identity, you put on a new identity. You put off an old way of life. You put on a whole new way to be human. That is the calling that is set before each and every one of you. Now, all sorts of teachers down through the ages have done a lot of work on this passage in particular and this idea of an old self and a new self that you put on and you put off. Thomas Merton in particular, he was obsessed with this passage. And his kind of, he's best known, his contribution was really this idea of a false self and a true self. And we've done a little bit of work on that the last few weeks. And he's ripping that idea from right here and from a few other places. And Paul, I love what he writes here. You find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. Sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. Am I alone in that? Okay, I guess I'm alone in that. <laughs> I relate. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is. We must find our real self in all its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity created to be the child of God. So we've been saying for a month now that one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to discover our identity and our calling. But here's the tricky thing that we want to get into tonight. It's one thing to discover your identity and calling. It's a whole other thing to actually grow and mature into the person that you see on the horizon. Are we tracking? It's one thing to hear your identity is rooted in who you are becoming in Christ. Oh, man, that will preach. It's a whole other thing to change because you are not that person yet. I mean, you are to Jesus, but not to the rest of us, right? Yet. So the question that we really want to drill down on tonight and next week is how, right? Really, how do, really the question is, how do you and I change? How do we break out from who we are to who we are becoming in Christ? How do we grow? How do we mature? Whatever language you want to wrap around, how do we get to, in Paul's language, fullness, the full measure of Christ? How do we, how do we change? Now, what we talk about when we talk about change is spiritual formation. If you're new to the church, um, don't worry about that phrase at all. That's insider lingo. That exact language isn't even used in the New Testament, but it's pretty close. The the word that's used all through the New Testament is transformation in English, or metamorpho in Greek. It's where we get the word metamorphism, which is the scientific label for how a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. And spiritual formation is, put simply, the process, not an event, 
Not a one-time thing, come forward for prayer, bam, now I'm Mother Teresa. Not at all. It's a process over a lifetime by which we are transformed to become more like Jesus and in doing so, more like our real true self. Dallas Willard defines spiritual formation this way. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly, a little bit at a time, being possessed and permeated, so it's relational, by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. I think of Paul's line in Galatians chapter 4, my dear children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is what? Formed in you. Like that's the heart of a pastor. I'm just like a woman in labor, just in agony and prayer and pain and passion and anticipation until Christ is formed in you. So here's the plan for the next two weeks. We basically just want to drill down on this idea of spiritual formation. Now, disclaimer, this is something that we've taught on before in depth. Uh, just a year ago, we did a three-month series on this. If you're around, if you're new, which again is a lot of you, please go back and listen to the podcast. But we want to hit it again for a few reasons. One, um, I'm learning the hard way from study after study that most leaders under-communicate by a margin of about 10. So I kind of say something once and think, cool, we got it. Let's move on. And then I'm starting to realize, like, I'm not that way and neither are you. We need to hear it again and again and again and let it just seep in past our mind and imagination into our heart and even into our body, right? Because that's what following Jesus is all about, getting what's in your mind into your body, meaning into all of your life. And secondly, our entire church, if you've been around the last few years, has been re-architected and rebuilt around this idea of spiritual formation. Like, if we have an agenda for you, um, it's that you be with Jesus, you become like Jesus, and you do what he did. And whether you are with us until you die, or whether you're in the city for two years and then you move back to Des Moines or whatever, we hope and pray that you are transformed by Jesus of Nazareth and your apprenticeship to Jesus in his family that we call the church. Like, that's our agenda for you. And so we just really want you to know this stuff like the back of your hand. On that note, we have two spiritual formation paradigms. Some of this you will remember from last fall that our church is really kind of organized around. This is the result of years of reading and research and life experience from myself and our team that we did behind the scenes. It's our, so this is not Bible, but it's our synthesis of the New Testament and all the best stuff we can get our hands on from um, kind of psychology and all the recent stuff there that we're really into about how we are transformed. We have two paradigms. We'll walk through one this week and one next week. The first we call unintentional spiritual formation. And the next we call intentional spiritual formation. That's really bad goofy language. If you're here and you work in advertising or you're a brand expert, please think of something better and email me by next week, all right? Um, by unintentional spiritual formation, all we mean is this is how you are formed with little or no intention on your part. All you have to do is wake up in the morning. This is all passive, not active. Now, before we start, we'll get into this in just a minute. Here's one thing you need to get your head around. Are you, are you here? Like, just put your phone down for a minute. Great. One thing you need to get. Spiritual formation is not a Christian thing, it is a human thing. There's a Christian version of it or a Jesus version of it that we think is the best one, but it's a human thing. Put another way, to be human is to be dynamic, not static. I read a philosopher a few weeks ago who said human beings are like sharks. Like, apparently sharks never 
stop moving or whatever. He said human beings are like that. We never stop moving. We never stop becoming somebody. Meaning every minute of every day, you are being formed. Put another way, we're all disciples of somebody or something. The question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple or a follower of Jesus of Nazareth or whatever else you fill in the blank with? Who are you being formed into? Who are you becoming? And honestly, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Now, that said, all I want to do for the rest of our time is walk you through this paradigm and then drop a question on you for you to chew on in the week ahead, and then we'll come back to the second one next week. Sound like a plan? You're stuck with me either way. All right, unintentional spiritual formation. We are all formed by, first off, the stories that we believe. Now, we could do this from any number of places in the New Testament, but let's just do it from Ephesians 4 because it's open in front of you. And this idea is all through the New Testament. So take a look again at 17. Um, Paul writes about the futility of their thinking. They, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding And because of that, are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, what he means here by the futility of their thinking is more than just kind of a thought life. It's what we call worldview, which sociologists define as the lens by which you see the world. We all know that life is complex. Would you agree? And and so the way that a human being is wired, it's like we're hardwired to take complexity and turn it into simplicity, to take all of the chaos and the news and social media and our own life felt experience, and somehow we have to put it all together into a story to make sense of the world, and then we live out the script of that story. Babette Buster, the screenwriter from Hollywood, calls human beings, quote, narrative animals. And these narratives that we believe in our head and we live into give shape to our life. Think of, um, you know, we could do example after example. Just think of sexuality. Think of the story that you're told every day when you go to class or you read the news or you walk outside the street that you're told about sexuality. You are told that you are an animal with time and chance on your side that sexuality is, you know, whatever it is to you, gender is a social construct, marriage is another social construct from the Byzantine era, it has to do with, you know, gender and male domination and economic theory from thousands of years ago. Sex is just play for grown-ups, that's all it is. Monogamy is not remotely natural, where is that in the animal kingdom? And after all, you're just an animal. So just as long as you don't hurt anybody, have fun, what's the big deal? So that's a story. That's not like objective truth. That's a reading of the data points of what it means to be human, what it means to be gendered, what it means to be sexualized. But there's other stories on offer. And that, of course, our culture claims that's the real true story of the world. But Jesus tells a very different story about sexuality. Am I right? You're not an animal. You are an image bearer of God made to rule over the animal kingdom. Yeah, you're similar, but you're also similar to the the angelic kingdom as well, right? You are this beautiful hybrid in between in the thin space between heaven and earth. 
Your gender is not a social construct. There's a social construct around it, but it is a good thing. It is a part of you. Your sexuality is a good thing. It's a part, not the most important thing, but it's a very important part of you. Marriage was created by God. That's why it's in every single culture in the world, because it's not man-made. God is the one who thought it up. And sex is way more than play for grown-ups. In sexuality, two human beings, the language of Genesis, are fused together into one flesh. Two autonomous, separate human beings become one at a soul level. This is not a lower view of sexuality. This is a much, much higher view of sexuality. And the interplay between your sexuality and your spirituality, there is no way to tear the two apart. And that's a story. That's a reading of the data points of sexuality and gender and marriage and life. And the question you have to decide at some point is which story will you believe? Will you believe the story that Jesus tells, or will you believe the story of our culture? My point is, the stories that you believe, whether it's about sexuality, whether it's about money, here's another story, more money equals more happiness. I'll let you guess about what Jesus would say to that story, right? What story that you believe will give shape to the person that you do or not become? Are we tracking? Three of us are. All right. Secondly, first we're formed by the stories we believe. Secondly, we're formed by our habits. So if you look down at 20, Paul writes, that, however, is not the way of life that you learn. What he's getting at is your way of life, if you prefer your habits, the things that you do on a regular basis, do something to your heart. Now, all sorts of work has been done over the last few decades in the field of psychology to point out, in the language of the best-selling book, the power of habit. Basic idea is that you and I are little more than the cumulative effect of our daily and weekly and monthly habits. What we do on a regular basis, we become. Said another way, the things that we do do something to us. And here's why. This is the tricky thing that I missed for years and years and years. Our habits get at the core of our being, not through our mind, not through our prefrontal cortex, but through what the writers of the Bible call our heart, through our limbic system, through this orientation of our emotional desire in a direction forward. And our habits shape our loves and our longings. The best uh, metaphor, I've used this before, so forgive me, but that I can think of is still coffee. So... I'm well aware of the fact, this is heresy in our city, but I'm well aware of the fact that coffee is the last thing I need when I wake up in the morning. If you know me, I'm type A, I'm high strung. Have you started to notice that I fidget just once in a, a while? And this is actually me way better. I like did chiropractic. I, years ago, I had a chiropractor come up to me after church and say, are you aware that you fidget a lot? And I said, yeah, um, people tell me that every single Sunday and I can't stop. He said, I can fix it. And did chiropractic. It was really helpful to about 50% of it. Now I'm doing acupuncture. We'll see what happens next. After that, it's, I don't know, hot yoga. We'll see. Um, <laughs> point is, like, I'm just kind of, I have all this nervous energy. I can't really sit still. I'm pretty type A. I'm bent toward anxiety. I'm doing a thousand times better now as I grow and mature into Christ-likeness. But it's still, it's like, it's my limp. All that to say the last thing I need when I wake up in the morning is a cup of coffee on an empty stomach. That is the last thing I need. Uh, a year or two ago, I was you know, into emotional health, still am, but, and so I gave up coffee for six months. 
That's a very long time. And for, it was a miserable week or two. And then I slept better at night. I woke up before my alarm. I had more energy during the day, more focus. I was happier all. And after six months, I just, I said, you know, I went back on coffee. It's not worth it. It is just too high of a price to pay. It's just, I'm sorry. It's just not worth it, right? So my point is, I know in my head that coffee is not good for me. So why do I start every single day with a cup of coffee? Because I love it. <laughs> my heart is bent in the direction of Koba coffee and my Chemex and my Japanese scale like every single morning. Now, how did, listen, how many of you like, like liked coffee your first sip? Eight years old, three of you, exactly. Moses, my eight-year-old, is just all into it, right? Now, most of the time, your first sip of coffee, you just think it's gross, right? So how did I come to love coffee? Well, when I was 17, I got a job at this coffee shop. This was like 1997. Some of you weren't even alive yet. And, um, and it was this place called Coffee People. Anybody remember that? It was like this bridge between second wave and third wave. It was, I want to tell myself it was cool in 1997, right? So I got a job there as a junior in high school. And uh, I hated coffee, but you worked at a coffee shop. You had to pretend. And so I would just put lots of dairy and chocolate and sugar into it to where you couldn't really taste the coffee anymore. And then I would drink that. And then eventually the mocha became a vanilla latte, became a latte, became a coffee, became a French pest, became a Chemex, became a really expensive single origin, ethically sort, all of that, right? <laughs> that whole thing. Now, over a long period of time, I became the kind of person who loves and longs for coffee. How? Through the daily act of drinking it. Does that make sense? And this is a very simple observation that we all, you don't need a scientist or even a Bible chapter to tell you this, that often the more you do something, the more you want to do that something, and vice versa, the less you do something, the less you want to do it. Have you started to notice that? Often the more you eat dessert after dinner, the more you want to eat dessert after dinner. The more you binge, fletch, binge, uh, binge watch Netflix, the more you want to binge watch Netflix. The more, for some of you, you exercise, ironically, and you get in better shape, the more you want to exercise. Some of you are like, that does not happen. Well, just, you have to go longer than three days. Um, <laughs> Right? And so the more that you read your Bible in the morning and pray, the more that you want to read your Bible in the morning and pray. And the less that you read your Bible and pray, the less that you really want to. It's kind of boring. You fidget. You would rather check email. or what. Does it make sense? My point is very simple. The things that you do, in particular on a regular basis, get into your heart and form your loves and your longings. We have to wrap our head around this because we think we're just watching Netflix. Actually, we're doing something to our heart. We think we're just at the gym another day. Actually, we're doing something to our heart. We think we're just getting coffee with her, and she's not a follower of Jesus, but it's whatever. I'm mature. Actually, you're doing something to your heart. This is really bad news for me and coffee, but it's really good news for you and me and our apprenticeship to Jesus. It means that through habits from the way of Jesus, or what in church tradition are called the spiritual disciplines, we can actually, we have a say, we can point our heart in the right direction. Once you realize that what you know in your head is nothing compared to what you love in your heart. And through habit, through the spiritual disciplines, you can point your heart in the direction of Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. For today, all I want you to see is we're formed first by the stories we believe and secondly by our habits. Third, much faster, we're formed by our relationships. 
We all notice that um, in the text here. Notice it's all in the plural, not in the singular. You must know, you, by the way, is, is plural for the church. You all must no longer, Bethany, that's for you, you all right there, <laughs> must no longer live as, I hear you got prophesied over last week. I'm so sad I missed it. I want to debrief with you later. Anyway, as the Gentiles do, plural, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened, and it goes on. Paul is saying something that we all know to be true, that we become like the people that we hang out with on a regular basis. Our friends, our family, and in all honesty, your family of origin, for most of us, is the single greatest influence on who you do or do not become. That's great news for some of us, mixed news for most of us, and terrifying for a few in the room. Also, your culture that you were born into, man, Trust me, you are formed by Western, secular, post-Christian culture. It's the air that you breathe. You're formed by your family, by your friends, by your circle of friends, by who you sit next to at the office or in class. Like, we are formed by the people that we hang out with. The odds are, if you, like, tally up in your mind's eye your circle of friends, that you dress in a very similar way, you vote in a very similar way, you hang out in a very similar way. You do relationship in a very... Because we become like the people that we spend time with on a regular basis. This is a great thing or a horrific thing based on who those people are. I'll let you figure that out. Now, finally, all of this happens in an environment. Paul writes in 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And on top of that, they are full of greed. Now, since we don't live in first century Ephesus, let me just nerd out on you for 30 seconds. Two things that you need to know about the city of Ephesus, which is the city on the receiving end of the letter. One, it was home to the temple of Aphrodite, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality and fertility. You would go to the temple, you would have sex with a temple prostitute, male or female, as a way to have Aphrodite smile on you, your sexuality, your fertility. It's an ancient agrarian culture. You want as many children as possible with favor. Secondly, because of that temple, people would literally travel to Ephesus all, from all over the Greco-Roman Mediterranean world, which made the city, first off, very wealthy, and then over time a financial center, such as a New York or a London or a stock exchange kind of city. Think of the one story about Ephesus in the book of Acts. Anybody know that from Acts chapter 19? It's a story about when Paul planted the church that now, years later, he's writing a letter to, planted the church in Ephesus. And what's the story about? It's a story about a move of God in the city, so many people started to follow Jesus that there was a riot that was started by the metal workers for the temple because nobody was buying the idols anymore. So many people started to follow Jesus that it crashed the local economy and there a riot broke out. Does that make sense, right? So all that to say, what are the two kind of gods of Ephesus? Sexuality and greed. What does Paul call out in the church in Ephesus? sexuality and greed. That's not a coincidence. That's not just, well, you know, sexuality and greed, we all deal with that. For sure, we all deal with that. But there was an acute issue in this city. Ephesus, like every city before and after it, formed its citizens. Now, the city that you and I call home is a formation machine, am I right? Portland, sentient or not, has a very specific idea of the person that it wants you to become. And that's not all bad. Our city wants you to recycle. 
I'm all for that. I think Jesus, I don't think he would really buy anything, so I'm not sure he would have that much to recycle. But if he did go on a shopping spree, I'm sure he would, no box, no bag, thank you, right? Um, it wants you to take public transportation or cycle. That's great. It wants you to get outside and hike in Forest Park. That's all great. It also wants you to do a number of other things that aren't G-rated, and so I won't talk about them from stage. It wants you to spend money that you don't have on things that you don't need. It wants you to get high. It wants you to drink way too much alcohol and just think that's okay and normal. There's good in our city and there's bad in our city. We both celebrate our culture and we critique our culture as followers of Jesus. But the danger is that the longer you and I live in this city, the more we become like this city, not only in the good ways but also in the bad. Think of when somebody moves into your neighborhood and they have like a giant truck or something and there's like an American flag sticker on the back. And we're like, hey, this is Portland. We're, we're only technically in America, because we, but only because we have to be. <laughs> like, that American flag thing, that just doesn't fly here. It's only a matter of time until we secede from the union, right? <laughs> but <laughs> some of you are like, really? I'm, I'm just saying that's true of our city, and you all know it's true. Somebody's like, oh, we're just really obvious in a moment like that. Oh, you're not from around here, are you? Or, oh, you're new. My point is very simple. We become like our environment, and for all of us now, we live in at least two places at once. We live in our city. For us, that's Portland, and we live in our phone. As the world is getting bigger, it's also getting smaller. That's why everywhere you go in the world, people dress alike and talk alike. And so here's the thing. We need to carefully discern together in community in what ways has Portland, has my phone, which is this portal to the Western secular post-Christian cultural moment, has it got into my head and made me into somebody that I'm not? Has it put lies into my head that I have started to believe and I have started to live into and I have started to become and those lies have started to become true? We have to carefully discern to make sure that we're not shaped or bent in the wrong direction by our environment. Finally, all of this happens over time. That's the tricky thing about it. It's not like, you know, you wake up one morning, first day in Portland, great, and now you're smoking pot by the afternoon, all right? It's at least until Thursday before that happens, okay? All of it happens over time and through experiences. Good experiences, bad experiences. Divorce, marriage, singleness, you have a baby, you can't have a baby, you're a wild success story, you feel like you're a failure, you know exactly what you're made to do, you have no clue. Whatever your life autobiography is, you are shaped, and so am I, by our experiences. Now here's my point, very simple idea tonight. All of this together, forms you. Stories that you believe, the habits of your day-to-day -day life, the relationships you're in, the environment that you call home, our city, your phone, time, experience, all of this forms you. And listen, all you have to do tomorrow is wake up. You don't, have to, you don't have to plan out anything. You don't need to take notes right now. You don't need to get out your schedule and like rethink your whole life from the ground up. All you need to do is wake up in the morning and do whatever it is you do. Walk your dog, check your email, read your Bible, go to work, spend your money, whatever it is that you do, all you have to do is wake up and then you realize you are becoming somebody. And of course the question is who or what are you becoming? Now, our apprenticeship to Jesus has to offset all of that. 
So the follow-up question is, all right, if that's how we become more like the stories we believe and our habits and our relationships and our environment, how do we become more like Jesus of Nazareth? And in doing so, how do we become more like our real true self? Come back next week, and we'll talk about it. Hint, it's not how most people think, which is just come to church more often, read your Bible every day, and try really hard. All three of those are great things, but that's not it. We'll talk about what it is next week. To end for tonight, I just want to invite you to ask one very simple question. And this is a safe place. No guilt, no shame. The Father is, by default, compassionate. The first thing on God's self-descriptor list in X34 of what God is like, he is compassionate. His baseline emotional disposition toward you is not anger or hate or, come on, get your act together. It's compassion. And so we want to live in the compassion of the Father and practice that for our own life and for the people to our right and our left. And so in the safe place of the Father's compassion, we just want to invite you to ask this one very simple question in the week ahead. Who are you becoming? Who are you being formed into? If you plot the trajectory of your character arc out 10, 20 years, who do you see on the horizon? If you're 20 and you envision yourself at 40, if you're 40 and you envision yourself at 50, if you're 60, if you're 60 and you envision yourself at 80, if you're 18 and you envision yourself at 18 and a half, which is about as far as some of us can get. <laughs> That's okay, don't worry. Who do you see yourself becoming? Is it Jesus expressed through your gender and personality and stage of life and ethnicity and socioeconomic background? Or is it somebody or something else? And again, no guilt, no shame, no voice, inner you know, critic, just the safe place of the Father's compassion. You know, years ago, I sat with Jesus and I asked this question before him really for the first time in about 30 years of age. And it was the answer was terrifying. Because I started, I had just enough kind of whatever under my belt to actually plot the trajectory. And I realized, well, I see myself at 40, 50, 60. And I see a man who is a success by all of the wrong metrics and a failure by all the ones that matter most. Failure as a husband, as a father, above all, as an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. And it hit me like a freight train. Hopefully that will not happen to you. For me, it was this, like, reboot the system, like, go back to the drawing board and kind of restart my life in decade level number three, right, and move forward. And it has been, ever since, been a number of years since that moment, and it has been a healing and a life-giving journey that I have been on of discovering my identity and my calling. And we just want to invite you to go on that journey. Some of you have been on it for decades. Others of you have yet to even start. But in the week ahead, we just want to ask you to ask this question of Jesus and of your own soul. Who am I becoming? Maybe tonight, before you go to bed, just slip out of your apartment and go on a walk or when you're just curled up on your couch, pull out your journal. Or if you're a high extrovert, get coffee with your friend and process whatever your style is. And just ask this question, who am I becoming? And then our practice for the coming week, for those of you that are in a Bradshaw community, and even if you're not, um, we'd love to have you join. It's all up at practicingtheway.org slash identity and calling. And basically, our exercise for the week ahead is what we call a habit audit. We stole this idea from a friend of ours, a Christian philosopher by the name of Jamie K.A. Smith. 
He calls it a liturgical audit. What he means by liturgical is the rhythms and routines and rituals that make up our day-to-day -day life. And so the basic idea is to do a self-inventory of your habits. So you literally sit down. We have it. It's all in the practice. You sit down with a piece of paper or your Evernote file out or your journal, and you make a list of, like, your morning routine and your workday and your night routine and your weekend routine, and you just you write it all down. And that should literally take you 10 or 15 minutes. And then you just sit and you kind of go down that list and you pause over each one, do a little listening prayer if you want, if you have the time, and just see if you can connect the dots between each habit and listen, what it is doing to your heart. And if, or should I say when, you identify a habit that is doing something unhealthy to your heart or even toxic to your heart, that does not point your heart in the right direction of be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, then it's very simple. You swap it out for a habit from the way of Jesus or what we call a spiritual discipline. So I did this a year ago and it has been such a gift over the last year. I think I said this a while ago and don't misread me here. I'm not saying you need to do this. But um, last September, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit about watching Netflix. And I don't even watch very much Netflix. We don't have a TV. We have like my computer and it's old and breaking, right? So it's not, I don't even watch that much. But once a few nights a week, I would sit down and watch an episode of whatever. And I would go to bed too late. I would wake up the next morning feeling kind of guilty. Yeah, I should not really have watched that, whatever. Um, and, and it was just not good for my soul. And so I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so I just said, all right, three months, no TV, no film at all until Star Wars. And then <laughs> break for Rogue One. Of course, Jesus is into that, right? And honestly, it was the best three months. I had time with Jesus. And then I, and I swapped it out for um, just the prayer of exam. Remember when Father Rick was here, the Jesuit priest who's my spiritual director? Remember that? And he did a teaching on the prayer of examine, and I just started to do that. And I'm really bad at it. I'm tired at the end of the day. I have three children. They are exhausting and beautiful. And um, <laughs> so I, it's not like I'm, you know, speaking in tongues before Jesus every night. It's more like I'm slouched in my chair, like, Jesus, what happened again today, right? But I just swapped it out. Netflix for the prayer of examine takes five minutes. And what it did to my heart, I just felt more free. I went to bed in a good place. I slept better. I felt like I woke up with Jesus. My time in the morning was better. I had more time to be present with my children and my wife and my own soul. I'm not saying you need to cut out Netflix. If anything, that says something about my immaturity, not my maturity. I'm saying that I started to recognize, okay, this is doing something. I might be able to get away with it or whatever. It's not like it's porn or something. It's just, eh, whatever. The People versus O.J. Simpson, I did get sucked back into that one. Ah, oh, it was so good, right? It's not legalism, people. It's not legalism, okay? <laughs> my point is, I was able to identify this is doing something to my heart, and it was so much better that a year later, I've really not changed anything. Now, again, I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm saying that's the, that's the idea. Are we tracking? Are you with me? Right. Now, all that to say, I want to wrap up just with a quote, actually, from the philosopher Jamie K. A. Smith. And I just want, you can put your Bible away, you can put your notepad away, and I just want you to breathe this in and breathe this out before we move into the rest of our time and the week ahead. He writes this. We are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. 
Thus scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4, 23. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Let's stand and pray together. I love the way John Mark finished there. He said Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires. Maybe during this teaching today, you noticed a way in which you're being unintentionally formed that needs a desire realignment. Let's take half a minute now to ask the Holy Spirit to align us with his longings and to give us the grace to change. This podcast is from Practicing the Way. We develop resources to help churches and small groups apprentice in the way of Jesus. And all we make is completely free because it's been paid for already by The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Sam from Derby, Derbyshire, Kevin from Hamilton, Ontario, Matthew from Langley, British Columbia, Elijah from Garland, Texas, and Kendall from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you all very much. To join the circle or to learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.